I meet people who, even in the quiet of the therapy room, will apologize for crying because it's, you know, it's a sign of weakness or they shouldn't be crying, they should be talking or they don't want to make me feel uncomfortable. And I'm like, literally, this is my job. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Hi, everyone. I'm Hetty Holmes and you're listening to Hacking Happiness with Dose, the podcast that explores what makes us feel good to get those happy hormones firing. My next guest is Kimberly Wilson, a chartered psychologist, former finalist on the Great British Bake Off and an award-winning food producer with a degree in nutrition. Her work looks at the role food and lifestyle plays in our mental health, including disordered eating, the gut-brain axis, and our emotional relationship with food. Her first book, How to Build a Healthy Brain, is available on Amazon and is a must-read. In this podcast, we discuss everything from the importance of breathing and the vagus nerve, or vagus nerve to be correct, to emotional management and how exercise builds psychological resilience. As ever, we are so thankful to our listeners for tuning in each week. To help us keep going, we would love it if you could rate, review and subscribe. Also, please share our newsletter to your friends and family or anyone who you think needs a hit of happiness in their inbox. I hope you enjoy. Kimberly, it's such a pleasure to have you on the Dose podcast. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And obviously you're the author of an amazing book called How to Build a Healthy Brain, uh, which has taken inspiration for these the sections in this podcast. Now, I haven't read the book in full, but I have listened to a preview and um, I'd just be delighted to, to ask you some things based on, on what I've heard so far. Sure. So I don't know if you're familiar with our podcast, but we we tend to kind of work through the happy hormones, which is the inspiration <laughs> for dose. So um, starting with dopamine, which is a lot to do with motivation, anticipation of reward that kind of stuff mm-hmm. so um so social media has obviously been linked to dopamine quite a lot because whenever we need that quick fix of happiness um, and mm-hmm. reward it's very easy isn't it to just go to our phones and and swipe up and see how many likes we've got mm. so I'd, I'd love to hear your view on how social media affects the brain all right so the the science around the effect of social media on our mental health is a little bit mixed. We're coming closer to a consensus. Um, but for a while you had two camps, right? And it was a kind of the same thing with video games, which was, you know, video games were bad for your health, brain health, mental health, you should avoid them. And then people were like, well, all of these people play video games and they're absolutely fine. So maybe it's not that simple. And so um, one of the concerns around uh, mental health and social media is the correlation between the very rapid increase in mental health concerns with this particular generation, you know, uh, know, Gen Z, um, who are digital natives. They were of the age that by the time they hit puberty and were becoming more independent, they were online in a way that, you know, your exes and your millennials kind of weren't. Um, and, And the timing of social media. So there seems to be this really powerful correlation between the rise of platforms like Twitter and Instagram and this rise in mental health concerns, particularly with girls. And, and so the initial concerns were, is it just that people are on these um, platforms at all? Is it just the amount of screen time? Um, and that doesn't seem to be the issue. What seems to be the issue is how you're using your time on social media. And the first thing to say about healthy use of social media is that it should be deliberate. One of the things that people fall into the habit in because it gives you this quick hit of, you know, 
maybe some response, maybe some validation. Someone's liked something that you've posted, or or maybe you get a hit of someone else's angry conversation and it kind of riles you up because actually we're quite strongly motivated by by aggression. It's quite an activating emotion. And so this is why you get sucked into other people's arguments on Twitter. Um, so one of the things that you need to be very careful is, is that your, your use of social media is deliberate. You're not just going on because you're standing in a queue or because you're waiting or just because your phone's right by your head when you wake up in the morning and it becomes this passive automatic, not thinking about it, mindless scrolling. That seems to be associated with worse mental health outcomes, more depression, low mood, more self-comparisons, that sort of thing. So you should be using it deliberately. And um, some more recent research has said that you should be using it to follow a diverse range of people who are inspiring to you. So following researchers, scholars, maybe, you know, TV personalities, but TV personalities who are doing something interesting, engaged in the world, shaping things. Because when what they found was that when young girls created more diverse, inspiring um, content for themselves to follow, they were much more engaged with their school activities. They felt much more capable themselves. They felt, you know they had an aspiration to follow. So deliberate use, which probably means limited use, you know, because we spend a lot of time just passively on it without even thinking. And also making sure that you're following inspirational people, diverse inspirational uh, content is associated with better mental health outcomes. Mm, that's so interesting, isn't it? Because it's a, dopamine is a lot to do with the expectation of a reward, right? And then when you don't get that reward that you're looking for, you have that drop and you feel mm-hmm. down and a bit blue. So I guess if you're filtering your feed to kind of give you only positive stuff, then then that's going to shape how you feel rather than going onto your profile and seeing, yeah, something that makes you feel jealous or angry or insecure. Mm. Yeah, that's or, or when you have an expectation. So one of the risks, I think, particularly, well, actually, I was going to say particularly for young women, but I think increasingly we're seeing it with with men, and it's probably going to very soon be quite equal. Is yes, with this expectation of well, I've posted something, and I I think it's a great picture, or I think it's really interesting, and I I expect this many um, likes. Um, or comments underneath it. And if you don't get that, then there's that risk of dropping. Um, But also just the the capacity for comparison. And one of my big things is that I don't think our brains were adapted to handle this level of comparison. So comparison is kind of normal. Um, We we do it very naturally. Social comparison is, is kind of built into us. We need to know where we fit in the hierarchy. And partly that's about safety and partly it's about status. Uh, and we just kind of want to know where we are. But when we evolved with this psychological tendency, we tended to be in quite homogenous cultural groups. You know, I'd be comparing myself to the people in my town or my tribe. There'd be people who I probably shared a lot of you know, physiological similarities. We're all probably the same height. We're all probably the same ethnic group. We're all probably the same, same access to, you know, whatever it might be. And so the, the variation was quite small. It was very limited. You know, maybe I'd be taller than someone, but... Uh, they'd be smarter than me, you know, so there there would be a kind of balance. And I think what happens with social media, particularly with things like Instagram, which is hugely a young woman's game, right? It's mostly young women on Instagram, um, is that 
you sudden it really warps your idea of what a peer comparison is, right? So you're not comparing yourself to your friends at school. You might have a feed which has, you know, yeah, your friends at school, but also a handful of supermodels and a handful of billionaires and a handful of like YouTubers who who made millions by the time they were 17. And, and it really warps this idea of whom you should be comparing yourself to. And, and this is when I think this is about the passive following. This is when it becomes a bit of a risk because then you're like, oh, well, these are my peers when actually they're not. These are these are unicorns that have done something kind of ridiculous and outrageous and you shouldn't be trying to compete or compare yourself with them. So, mm-hmm. so slightly off the... No, that's great advice. So, so good. Um, so another thing that obviously drives us um, mm. is money. And uh, mm. as you mentioned in your book, we don't talk enough, do we, about our financial worries, but it is a massive part of why we have fights in our relationships and all of that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd love to hear your your opinion on that. Yeah, I think I think everybody, like everybody, even in therapy, really, they struggle to talk about money. People will tell me about their problems with food. They will tell me about their parents' affairs. They will tell me about their own affairs before they can bring up issues of of debts or money. It's so taboo. It's so impossible to talk about. And, And I think that's because money really links into so much into our status, right? And and we certainly live both in the UK, in our immediate environment, but also online again, with this kind of comparison environments in a situation where we ascribe having money a kind of moral value. We think rich people or people who have, who have money have done a good people. You know, they've done something good. They're extra special. They're, they're extra valuable because, simply because they have money, even if they were just born with it and they didn't do anything to themselves to earn it, you know, somehow they have a glow about them. And, and, and by by default, then, if you don't have money, there's something wrong with you or you've done something wrong or you're undeserving or, you know, so we have this really strong moral value that's associated with money. And and alongside that, we have a status value that's associated with money. You know, again, better if you're if you have money and you're you're somehow a lesser person if you don't. And so money becomes really fraught with ideas about our own value and worthiness. And and therefore, not having money becomes something that is so, so deeply shameful for people. Even when it's, you know, again, nothing that they've done, you know, sometimes some people get lucky and some people are unlucky. And, and that's what makes it so difficult to talk about, just huge shame. But if you can't talk about it, then you can't get help with it. You know, if you can't talk about your debts, then you can't speak to a debt expert that can help you under, you know, reorganize your credit cards and work out what to pay first and, and get your support. If you can't talk about your gambling habit, then it gets to a terrible state before someone else notices. So we really should be trying to do much more, I think, to have more conversations about money. And there are some great um, people online who are, you know, talking about debt, talking about money, talking about improving your finances. Um, But also simply we should teach children how to handle money because we, we basically 
you know, um, maybe if you've had a Saturday job, you've learned how to do a little bit of your own budgeting. But we basically send people out at 16, 18, 20 into a world which is set up to make you spend as much as possible, whether it is credit cards, whether it is, you know, store cards and delayed payments, you know, buy now, pay later, that the entire environment is set up to get you into debt um, and then to keep you kind of stuck in debt. And what's really interesting is if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and I think about this quite a lot um, in just seeing where my clients are, is that at the bottom of the hierarchy, you have your kind of basic needs, you know, safety, making sure you've got a safe place to live, enough food in the bank, da, 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 before you can get to the higher levels, which are about self-actualization, becoming who you really are, finding your values, you know, really being fully engaged with the world. You cannot get there when you're worried about money. Money takes up so much space in your mind. You can't be creative if you're worried about paying the bills. You can't, you know, really fully engage and get to those higher levels of actualization when you're suffering under the burden of money worries. And so there's actually a kind of huge, I think, creative drain that comes with our inability to talk about and deal with money. And I think actually as a society, we'd be much better off if we help people to talk about money, help people learn how to budget um, and help people to get on board with the idea that you, you enough is enough. Like having enough is a really solid place to be, like not necessarily chasing more and more and more and more, which gets you onto a treadmill of constantly, you know, trying to have more status, trying to have a more expensive handbag, trying to have a, a, a more impressive lifestyle, which just, again, keeps you locked in to a, a kind of debt-based lifestyle. Mm, it's all about finding that contentment, isn't it? That's just, so much. Yeah, and a lot of people are probably looking for that now during lockdown. You know, they might have lost their jobs, their lifestyles might have been turned upside down. But you know, looking for—I guess it's forced them to look at what's important, right? Like put, put mm-hmm. things in perspective, whether it's their families or you know their attitude to self-care. You no, know, that's really interesting. And also to get it on the curriculum, I think that would be really important for Amazing. kids. Along with other things like teaching self-care and that kind of stuff, it's super important, isn't it? Emotional awareness would be an amazing thing to add to the curriculum. Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Which is the next thing we get onto. So uh, talking about oxytocin and and it's that one, isn't it, that helps us to build Mm -hmm. relationships and empathy and bonding. Um, So we see it as this love hormone, obviously, but Mm. it's it's not all fuzzy, is it? Yeah. So I think... Yes, yeah, so oxytocin is thought of as the love hormone, you know, the cuddle hormone. It's the one that's released when you have hugs or see pictures of kittens, and it's all supposed to be lovely and 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 um, all good. But that's one of the issues when we get a little bit reductive um, about the body's chemistry, basically, that we assume that it all just does one thing. You know, we do the same thing with serotonin. We say that serotonin is only about mood and happiness, but actually most of serotonin is, is helping to move food through your gut it's you know most of the serotonin in your body is in your gut so it's and it has all these different roles to play but also that it's all about the kind of balance and and quite often with with most things in life there's a bit of a tax to pay so with oxytocin yes the reason we call it the bonding hormone is that it does seem to draw you closer to your loved ones it does seem to be involved in this uh, process of attachment so finding someone that you're connected with that you need that that will support you and having that those atta- attachments are so important we know for example that 
going through a physically painful experience you know, for kids maybe having, um, you know, going to the dentist or something, just having an attachment person there, whether it's your sibling or your parent, makes it all much easier to bear. And you, we can get on board with that idea. I think that's quite, you know, knowing that someone you love is nearby just makes everything that's stressful a little bit more, more easy to bear. Um, so fantastic for bonding. Lovely. Great. Thank you, oxytocin. That's amazing. But on the flip side of that is that it makes us almost overly loyal to our own in-groups. It makes us think that our team is the best team, which can make us really disparaging of other people. It can kind of be part of the pathway which is associated with xenophobia or, you know, just disliking people who are different from us. And in clinical trials, they've been able to to generate that very, very easily and in very arbitrarily. So what they can do is to simply put a group of people into a room and say, you guys with the green t-shirts are one team and you guys with the blue t-shirts are another team. Nothing else, no other differences, just random allocation to different colored t-shirts. And people will start to think more negatively about the people in the different colored shirts. They will assume that they have worse personalities and, and more negative characteristics and that they're more likely to be liars. And they're, so we, uh, oxytocin can create bonding, but it can also, as the tax, as the flip side of that, create a kind of um, outgroup experience as well. And, and we need to be really mindful of that. We need to be, uh, you know, we're seeing it all around us at the moment, this kind of good, bad, in-group, out-group, black and white thinking in our politics, certainly on social media. Um, and we need to be really mindful about what's generating that state of, of thinking and to be challenging that all the time. You know, why am I, what is it that I think is so great about my side? Is it that we're completely um, without fault and, you know, we're the good guys? Or is it possible i.e. is it likely that um, it's a bit more complicated than that? In these current times, we've all been cooking at home a lot more than usual. That means it can be hard to find recipe inspiration. But by using wild seafood from Alaska, which can be cooked straight from frozen, you can create delicious, protein-packed meals in minutes. Alaska salmon is naturally high in omega-3, vitamin D, and is low in fat, making it good for the heart, body, and mind. Alaska seafood is caught in some of the cleanest waters in the world, and Alaska is 100% committed to sustainable fishing practices. Check out at Alaska Seafood UK on Instagram for recipe inspiration, or visit alaskaforeverwild.com for more information. You also touched on emotional management, didn't you? Because mm. you know, we're, we're good at organising our lives, our money, whatever. But when it comes to our emotions, it's a different story, isn't it? Because um, a lot of us, I don't know, some people are very good at disguising how they're feeling. They've got that mm. relationship where they can talk to their head and say, don't react, don't react, don't, you know. Whereas some people are quite physical and they cry easily and they you know, get worked up very easily. And you know how some people, it's written all over their face, they can't disguise mm -hmm. how they're feeling. So yeah, it, I'd love to hear you talk about like how we can mm. talk to our brain to help control those emotions from coming out. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say we need to, I think it's the opposite. I think too many people try to repress their emotions and to repress the way that they feel. Um, and I think there are lots of reasons for that. So first of all, we have, you know, we still have a bit in the UK, a bit of an uh, over 
hang of like a hangover of a kind of Victorian stiff upper lip and you don't show your emotions and it's best to keep everything inside. Um, I meet people who even in the quiet of the therapy room will apologize for crying because it's, you know, it's a sign of weakness or they shouldn't be crying. They should be talking or they don't want to make me feel uncomfortable. And I'm like, literally, this is my job. Don't worry about it. It's fine. So we have these really strong beliefs about the appropriateness of expressing our emotions. The problem with that is, is that suppressing your feelings has measurable detrimental effects on your physical and mental well-being. So we have lots of studies that show us, you know, for example, what they do where they get a bunch of people and they'll put you in a room and you're split into two groups and you're watching some sort of, you know, distressing movie, like a horror movie or something, something like, oh. Um, and they will get one group of people and they will say, look, you're going to watch a horror movie. Um, you're allowed to express your feelings. You're, you know, you're allowed to like squirm and, you know, close your eyes and squeal and, and, and do what you like. And, and similarly, you can do this with um, an ice bucket challenge. Put your hand in, in cold water in an ice bucket and one half of the group are allowed to swear and shout and stamp their feet. And the other are, the other half of the group are told that they, we need you to not show your feelings, please. We want you to just repress as much as possible. And in the ice bucket um, version of this study, people are less able to tolerate the discomfort. They they can't hold their hands in the ice water for quite as long. And in the, the video trials and watching the movies, um, although people are able to cover their emotions in their faces, it's like their bodies are screaming instead. So the skin conductance, the stress that's moving through their bodies is much, much higher. And so there is a there's a physiological demand of suppressing your emotions which can lead to chronic stress if you're the kind of person that keeps them covered up a lot of the time. So I think really emotional awareness for most people isn't so much about keeping their emotions uh, under wraps, but it's much more about understanding what your emotions are about, what they're doing, why they're there. Because I think most people think that their emotions are just unhelpful and a sign of childishness. But really, once you understand what your emotions are doing, so once you understand that anger is your signal of injustice, that it's telling you that you feel like you're being treated unfairly or that you're seeing someone else being treated unfairly. Once you understand that jealousy is your sense that you're being excluded from a relationship, you know, it's not just that you're being silly or childish, then you can understand, oh, am I being excluded? Oh, actually it's telling me that I really value that relationship. Maybe I should be making more effort to, to let that person know that I, I value their relationship. So in, in the book, I go into the big five, the big five emotions. So anger, jealousy, envy, um, guilt, and what's the big five? Um, sadness, I think. Oh, my brain's gone this morning. Um, to really help people understand what what those emotions means, the emotion, the emotions that people struggle with the most, what they mean so that you can manage it much better in a much more direct way. Mm, that's fascinating. And as you say, another thing that our kids could benefit from in the classroom as well, just having more knowledge yeah, about their emotions. A better understanding of what your emotions are doing. Yeah. Uh, it just it makes your relationships much better as well because it means you don't react to the emotion, 
rea- you react to the understanding of what the emotion is telling you. And yeah. it, it could just save so much grief. Yeah. Um, and so you touched on serotonin earlier. Um, mm. And as you say, it has a very strong association with the gut. Like a lot of our serotonin, mm. most of our serotonin is produced there. And you talk a lot, don't you, about the vagus nerve. And am mm. I saying that correctly? Because some people yeah, yeah, say yeah. vagus, vagus. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it has a, it's a link, isn't it? Basically a direct mm. line between the brain and the gut. So yeah, what, what is that connection and how powerful is it? Because we talk about our gut as a second brain, don't we? Mm. Yeah, we think it's really powerful and there's lots of research going into the role of of the vagus nerve in lots of different things. I think of it, for example, primarily when I'm working with people with IBS because often people will, so maybe we should explain what vagus is for people who don't know. So vagus nerve, it's, it's the longest of the cranial nerves, which means the nerves that come out of your brain because a lot of your nerves come out of your spinal cord. So it's a nerve that comes out of your brain And as it goes down through your body, it connects into most of your major organs. So it loops in under the throat, behind your voice box, it loops into the heart, it connects into the lungs, the liver, the spleen, the kidneys, into your gut, into your sex organs. And so it's this bi-directional highway of information uh, between uh, between the brain and the gut, essentially, but also into all of the other organs. Um, And vagus in particular has this very important role in in homeostasis, like rest and digest, we think of it, and and the other R's, so rest, di- rest and digest, but um, reproduction and regulation of your heart and breathing rate, and so it's this really crucial nerve that. For example, in people with IBS, people tend to think that if they've got gut issues, it's related to something that they're eating. But actually, quite often it's associated or or triggered by stress. And it's stress that is communicated by the vagus nerve. So part of my work with people who have IBS is, yes, let's look at, you know, your diet and maybe I'll refer you to a dietitian and we'll think about, you know, things that might be um, upsetting your stomach. But I also definitely want to talk to you about stress, the amount of stress that you're dealing with, how um, how well you identify stress um, and, and to work on techniques to help you t- to manage that in a very direct and practical way. Um, and that by doing both things, you help people to understand, for example, um, that their body is fully connected, that you cannot separate mind and body. Your, your body doesn't know that we think of it as separate. So we really need to start thinking about these things in a very integrated way. And I feel like I've gone off your question. (laughs) No, I mean, it's just the importance of it, really. And I guess you talk a lot about breathing, don't you, and helping Mm. to control the Mm -hmm. the vagus nerve. So yeah, Mm. talk to us a little bit about that, how we can Mm -hmm. change our breathing to kind of calm ourselves down and actually get homeostasis in the body. Absolutely. So yeah, so knowing that the vagus nerve plays this role in regulation of the heart rate and regulation of your breathing rate um, and this role in in stress modulation. So it's essentially the flip side. It's it's the key feature of what's called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the flip side of your fight or flight system or your sympathetic nervous system. So it's like a very calming response. And it's the reason that you're told to take a deep breath when you're feeling stressed. The problem is people tend to go <gasps> and kind of just like fill up their lungs and then exhale and it doesn't really help very much. The, the focus when you're trying to use your breath to stimulate the vagus nerve, which you know switches on acetylcholine technically um, and helps then to um, block inflammation in the body. The focus on that breath is really on the exhalation. 
So I speak to people about a four, four, eight breath. So an inhale for four, nice and slow. It doesn't have to be particularly deep, but it needs to be nice and slow. An inhale for a slow count of four. So one, two, three, four, really slow. Then you hold for the same count of four and then you exhale for a slow count of eight. And in order to slow down your breath, you need to constrict at the back of your throat. And it's that constriction as well as, you know, for that long exhalation, you need to really push up on the diaphragm. It's those two things that help to stimulate the vagus nerve and help to shift you more towards this relaxation, rest, um, homeostasis. Um, nervous state. So it's the quality of the breath and the and the long, slow exhalation. Mm, I've been practicing this a lot at night because I'm still feeding a, a newborn and I do that exact practice and I actually haven't been holding enough at the top, but yeah, it's, it's really powerful, isn't it? And actually it helps the whole process of breastfeeding a lot easier. And as you say, like the hormones aren't, aren't just one dimensional, it affects everything. Mm. So like that's the oxytocin maybe being affected and yeah, no, it's very powerful. I think I learned that on a yoga retreat somewhere, but it, it's great. Mm. More people need to know about it because it Absolutely. is very transformational, isn't it? Um, and you talk a lot in your book also about like how to build psychological resilience, don't you? Mm. And, and is this a key part of it? Like learning techniques, like the breathing in stressful situations? Yeah, I think it's really, so psychological resilience or, you know, we can call it kind of bounce back ability. Um, and whilst there are some components of being able to bounce back from difficult situations, which is innate. So we think particularly, you know, children who are, just constitutionally laid back you know you get you sometimes get kids who are like so chilled <laughs> you're like oh my gosh um whereas some people are just built a little bit more you know, kind of sensitively or a little bit more anxious so we think that people who have an innate laid back style tend to have a greater tendency to bounce back ability but outside of that there are so many things that you can either learn or practice that can build this psychological resilience. Now your big one, your number one is social support. It's going to be about your relationships. And that's one of the things that I think we underestimate is the quality and the importance of our relationships. I think it's one of the things we're seeing in the pandemic, um, which is how, how much we just took them for granted, how much we relied on just being able to catch up with people and see them and how that actually really helped to balance our mood and how much more stressed and anxious we are when even though we might still be able to talk to them on the phone or on on, on kind of video calls, doesn't feel the same and we all are sitting, feeling a little bit more stressed. So social support is a huge one. One that I think is really important and is massively overlooked is taking reasonable risks. So we think, you know, one of the, the problems, so again, going back to this idea that there's been this rise in mental health issues in this younger generation, and a lot of people thinking, you know, is it just social media? One of the other factors that seems to contribute to this is that these are a generation who were much more likely to have helicopter parents, you know, very anxious parents, big restrictions on their play, you're not allowed to fight with someone in the playground. You know, the teacher had to swoop in and make everybody be friends. So all of these little uh, kind of interpersonal relational risks, you know, don't climb trees because you'll fall out and then we'll sue the council, you know, all sorts of things um, seem to have prevented or reduced the opportunity for these children to, to build 
psychological resilience because we call it, we call those sorts of risks stress inoculation. So in the same way that a vaccine, you know, gives you a little bit of a, a virus and your immune system recognizes it and comes back stronger, stress inoculation does the same thing. It says, look, I'm going to expose you to this little manageable risk. You know, you fall out with your friends in the playground. It's a small social risk. And you learn how to deal with it. You learn how to work it out. You learn how to repair that relationship. You learn to negotiate the the rules of social engagement. And then the next time it happens and you have a, you know, in 10 years time, you, you, you're you broken up, your friend, your boyfriend breaks up with you or whatever, then actually you know how to deal with these little, from having had the experience from a younger age and having built on those, you know, you're much more equipped to deal with it. And we think that there's a generation of people who just haven't had that exposure to those sorts of reasonable risks. And so when the big risks do come, when they lose their job or they can't find their job or they do have a bad breakup, they're much more psychologically vulnerable. So taking these risks is really important. Having values, knowing, having good role models. There are lots of things. I think there are 10 listed in the book um, Mm. that you can practice to help build your psychological resilience. Mm. And does this go back to the metaphor of like running away from a saber-toothed tiger, you know, like how, you know, back when we were, you know, in the caves, we would have those little bits of stress all the time, wouldn't we? We'd be running away from a threat and then we'd go back to being normal. And so stress Mm -hmm. was a constant thing in our lives, right? And then because we don't have that now, we, Mm -hmm. like you say, when, when we do face these obstacles, we don't know how to react. So, and it kind of goes through to endorphins, right? So when we're, Mm -hmm. when we're at the gym, we get that spike of, feel good but it's also it also takes us back to that running away from a saber tooth depending on the type of class it is like if, if it's a it's a various boot camp or you know if it's something high intensity it's i think it's trying to give us that same effect as is mm. like cold water swimming that's something that people are really enjoying to give us that mm. whoa it feels so good and but it's stressful energy isn't it it's kind mm. of pain it's pain relief mm. so yeah, yeah i'd love i'd love to hear you talk about that yeah so so what's really beautiful about kind of exercise and these physiological stressors is that they do seem to cross over. They do seem to kind of cross over to give you resilience in other areas. So for example, there was a study that was done looking at people in Scotland and simply being physically active made you much more resilient to psychological stress. And it seemed to be that, you know, your body again, doesn't really distinguish between different sources of stress. So when you go to the gym and you you stress a muscle by, you know, or you stress your physiological system, um, your body responds to that stress by getting stronger. You know, it's a small, manageable stress, you know, you're not kind of walking in cold and trying to lift a bus, you know, small, manageable stress that you build up over time and your body responds by getting stronger. Um, Similar to what we were talking about with, with children taking these little social risks, like you take these small manageable risks and your body responds by getting stronger. And so uh, your physiology does play a role in your psychological well-being in that way, because you're, you're, if your whole system is just more resilient, then your brain doesn't have to work quite as hard when it, when it beco- comes up against something difficult. And then, you know, endorphins are literally pain relief. You know, they they are innate opiate, they connect to our opiate receptors and they're inbuilt pain relief. And it's kind of this two, it's a, it's really beautiful in terms of the evolution of it, that your body says, look, if you go through this stressful thing, 
it's important for you. It's valuable for us. You know, exercise is, is not comfortable. It's not pleasant when you're in it. But what we'll do is to take the pain away at the end and also give you a bit of a runner's high as an incentive for you to do it again, because overall it's really valuable for the health of the system. So yeah, it, it kind of, it's, it's all really beautiful the way that it all, all plays in together. Yeah, I think so too. But like with every drug, right, you've got to be responsible with them, haven't you? Because there are people Absolutely. that over-exercise yes. <laughs> to get that runner's high, you know, doing too many marathons or whatever. And it's because they're disguising how they're feeling. They want to just mm-hmm. uh, get a, a quick fix. Is that something you see in therapy with your clients, like people who abuse exercise for that effect? So less so much with exercise. So if I see people who are over-exercising, it's usually very much in the context of restrictive eating disorder. So um, anorexia or people kind of on the way to anorexia. I think where perhaps I see the misuse of endorphins or the misuse of that response is in food and um, overeating or binge eating and where it can get to the point of being painful and then flips over. And I think maybe it's less so much about endorphins. It's also about dopamine. It's also about serotonin and the way that food can switch on both our reward and both and and also our our mood hormones and make serotonin more accessible in the brain. Certain macronutrients can do that. So it's a kind of hacking of your neurochemistry through food um, in order to avoid very often difficult feelings. Um, difficult relationships you know it's a kind of retreat away from the thing that is difficult into food and this is again where we come back to the idea of helping people learn how to deal with difficult emotions helping people learn how to deal with difficult relationships they're never going to be pleasant no one's going to like skip into an awkward conversation as if it's it's really easy but if you can learn to tolerate it if you can learn to bear it then you can learn to deal with it rather than retreat from it and use other ways, often quite unhelpful, if not harmful ways of trying to avoid or distract yourself from those emotions. Amazing. Well, Kimberly, I could listen to you all day. You're absolutely fascinating and so articulate in how you express everything that you say. And I just want to read your book now because I'm, <laughs> I'm hooked. Um, so is, is it available just on Amazon? Is it is it, is it out now? Yeah, it's yeah. out now. Um, it, and it, I think it's out everywhere. So it's in, in all formats. So e-formats on Kindle and Apple Books, hard copy, and and audiobook so yeah um, and I do the audiobook so I've got a friend of mine who says that she listens to it when she wants to go to sleep which hopefully doesn't mean it's boring but she says <laughs> I have a very soothing voice so. oh, <laughs> I can hopefully see that we'll find it helpful yeah it's always funny isn't it when our friends hear our voices back because exactly. it's like oh it makes it really self-conscious but no I uh, I always prefer it when the actual author reads the reads the book it's, yeah it's I do so yeah and and you've got a podcast as well haven't you Yes, uh, it's called Stronger Minds. Um, And at the moment, I'm just putting up the um, audios of my book club. So you can, I have a monthly uh, mental health book club on my Instagram. And so I put the audios there for people who weren't able to attend. Um, But also I'll be talking much more about, you know, questions around psychology, questions around food, um, and just, yeah, getting to know your brains a little better. Yeah, awesome. Well, I'll let you get back to your day, but thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. pleasure. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you. 
If you have any questions about today's podcast, please drop us a line at hello at whateveryourdose.com. 